and completed her family medicine reticent residency, excuse me, at Lancaster General Hospital in Lancashire, Pennsylvania. She received a Bachelor of Science with Honors degree and a Master of Health Administration degree from Cornell. She's also served on the board of the American Academy of Family Physicians. She's also trained as a Creighton Medical Consultant and a teen star educator. She balances this crazy <laughs> career as a teacher and a family physician, also with a role as mother and wife. She's, this is so precious. She's proud to be accompanied in this life's journey by her husband, also a physician, a fellow family physician, Dr. Kenneth Lynn, and they're delighted to be the parents of four young children. Can you even believe that she is here today doing all of those things? Please welcome the amazing Dr. Marguerite here today. I know I feel like I have a lot to live up to. Thank you for that wonderful introduction, Lynn. Um, good morning, everyone. Uh, as she said, my name is Dr. Marguerite Duane, and I'm delighted to be here today to speak to you on behalf of FACTS, uh, an organization which I co-founded with a fellow family physician to educate our medical colleagues about the science of fertility awareness-based methods, their applications for women's health, and their effectiveness as true family planning methods, methods that women and couples can use um, to both plan pregnancy and, if necessary, to postpone pregnancy. This is a slight adaptation of a presentation that we developed with Natural Womanhood, an organization who's dedicated to promoting all the forms of natural family planning and fertility awareness-based methods to the general audience. Um, a couple of brief housekeeping notes. On your chair, you should have an evaluation form for this talk specifically. We are very committed to continuing to improve the information that we share. We give a number of talks to medical audiences. This is a talk that we give to a general audience. We have over 85 speakers trained across the country to go in to colleges and medical schools and nursing schools to educate the next generation about the beauty of our fertility. But we want your feedback so we can continue to improve it. Um, I also have a couple of my friends up front that are going to pass around sign-in sheets. So if you want more information from FACTS, if you want to get our weekly newsletter where we try and do research updates, share patient stories, um, please feel free to sign up uh, for that. So let's go ahead and get started. Let's see which direction I want to go. I mentioned FACTS as an organization. We were very deliberate in coming up with that name. Uh, we are under the umbrella of the Family Medicine Education Consortium, which is a secular medical education organization. And we were very deliberate in forming under this because I truly believe fertility awareness-based methods, natural family planning, should be available to every woman and man. As I like to say, nobody's ovaries are Catholic. Why should we limit this only to the Catholic Church? So as a part of a secular medical education organization, we're able to reach a much broader audience. Um, and it's important because the way we are currently trained in medicine um, is to treat fertility as a disease, you know, as something that we need to suppress. And you'll see as we talk about this further. And as I said, we did this in conjunction with Natural Womanhood. Brief disclaimer, I do not expect by the end of this presentation you will know how to chart with any of these methods or you'll be able to explain this to your friends or children. We do provide resources. Um, our goal next year is to try to develop a database on our website of medical professionals that are trained in these methods, as well as teachers, so that you can find them in all of the evidence-based methods. We are, although I'm trained as a Creighton medical consultant and a teen star educator, we are method neutral. We believe the best method is the one that will work best for the woman or the couple. So, I was asked to, to today address the contraceptive crisis to respond to this and how fertility awareness is a healthy and, and appropriate response. But before we can address what the contraceptive crisis is, we have to look at what was promised. And if you recall, the birth control pill um, was first approved by the FDA on my birthday, well, at least a decade before my birthday, on May 9th, um, in, in the early 1960s. And in the 1960s, when the birth control pill and, and birth control in general began to expand, we were promised that it would bear so much good fruit. We were told that the pill would prevent unintended pregnancy, would reduce abortions, ensure happy marriages, improve women's health, and provide sexual freedom for women and for men. The reality is exactly what Pope St. Pope Paul VI predicted. Birth control will fail up to 20% of the time. Um, because of its failure rate, abortion becomes the backup form of birth control. 
and abortion has not decreased, it has increased. And in fact, the Guttmacher Institute, which is the research arm of Planned Parenthood, their statistics show that more than half of all abortions are done in women who were using birth control at the time that they got pregnant. Um, divorce rates, as we know, have skyrocketed. There's been an increase in sexually transmitted diseases. In the 1960s, there were two sexually transmitted diseases. There are now over two dozen sexually transmitted diseases. Um, birth control, depending on the type, increases a woman's risk for blood clots, which can increase her risk for stroke or a pulmonary embolism or heart attack. I have had the honor um, and sadness of meeting families, mothers and fathers, brothers and sisters who have buried their daughters and their sisters because of the side effects of birth control. Um, it has also been shown and published recently a big meta-review that it will increase the risk of depression. And the World Health Organization classifies the combination hormonal birth control pill as a group one carcinogen. It is in the same category as tobacco because of the documented increased risk of breast cancer, cervical cancer, and liver cancer. It's October 20th. This is Breast Cancer Awareness Month. It's hard to go anywhere on social media or in general media and not hear about it. But how many of you have heard about the link between birth control and the increased risk of breast cancer? Um, so what is the answer to all of this? Again, let's look to Humana Vitae and what St. Uh, Pope Paul VI pointed out. Through natural means of regulating fertility, through understanding the gift of our fertility, understanding our reproductive physiology. Um, and I really like Dr. Lappert's uh, comment about a reproductive system is not a system within an individual. It's really within the couple. My goal today is to be a little bit more upbeat than Dr. Lappert um, <laughs> and talk about the positives and the beauty of the gift of our fertility and the signs that women can learn um, by charting with natural or fertility awareness-based methods. Now, just a show of hands, I hope I'll see a lot. How many of you are familiar with the term natural family planning and fertility awareness-based methods? So I love coming to these audiences. <laughs> when I go to medical schools, the number of hands that go up are much less, which is great because I know they're always going to walk away from my talk having learned a great deal. Um, at FACTS, we use the term fertility awareness-based methods preferentially to the term natural family planning, but the terms are interchangeable. Natural family planning or fertility awareness-based methods simply refer to learning to observe physical signs that a woman produces to identify when she may be fertile and when she may not. Natural family planning emphasizes that these are natural, these do not involve the use of any drugs or devices, um, and they uh, allow a couple to share responsibility to plan for their family. The term fertility awareness emphasizes it's, a, it's, an, it's an awareness and an understanding and even appreciation of the way our body is designed to function. And it, it, it allows for the expanded use of these methods. This isn't simply to be used for family planning, but this can be used by women, by girls. I'm a big promoter, I'm a teen star educator. We need to be teaching our adolescents about the way their body is designed to function so that when they go to the doctor at 15 because you know they're having painful periods, they don't fall victim to, well, the answer is the birth control pill. They will say, no, my cycle is a part of my normal health. Give me a real solution. So what I'd like to talk about today is fertility awareness charting and the signs that women can learn to chart, how these methods can be used to address a range of women's health issues. I will tell you as a physician, I did not hear the term natural family planning or fertility awareness or charting the female cycle until I was in my first year of residency at age 29. I'm a cradle Catholic, but the term never was presented to me um, because I had been single up until that point, and it was not something we learned about in medical school. The way we learn to address any issue that the woman deals with with her cycle, whether it's irregular cycles or painful periods, whether she has acne or um, other concerns, we're trained that the pill is the panacea for all that ails women. If she has anything wrong, simply put her on the pill, and this will give her a magical 28-day cycle. All her symptoms will disappear, and you know you will do you will oh as a positive side effect you'll reduce her risk for an unintended pregnancy, which, um, again, referring to, back to Dr. Labbert's talk, it's interesting. Today, I really think in today's day and age, an unintended pregnancy, a baby, is, is um, in many people's view, the worst sexually transmitted disease that a woman could experience. Um, we know otherwise. Um, I'm gonna talk about the effectiveness of these methods, both to achieve and avoid pregnancy. You know, in medical school, and residency, we learn about all these family planning methods. You know, we talk about planned parenthood. 
Planned Parenthood really should call themselves what they are. They're planned unparenthood. Nobody goes to Planned Parenthood to figure out how to have children. Um, they go there or they're, um, they're brought there uh, in an effort to stop them from, from procreating. Um, but fertility awareness-based methods are true family planning methods, and they represent a healthy alternative to the traditional approaches of women's health care that women are offered. If we have time, I will touch a little bit on how the, these methods can have a positive impact on relationships. Um, they're not without their challenges. You know, learning to chart your cycle does require engaging in a regular behavior. It requires partner support. It requires self-sacrifice and self-control. Um, but overall, the impact can be very positive. So what is charting? For medical professionals, the thought of charting, especially in today's day and age of the electronic medical record, can sometimes give some of us a little bit of an anxiety attack. But for women, charting is really a way for them to track what's happening in their body on a daily basis. It allows them to observe external signs that actually reflect the internal hormonal changes in their body. It's an amazing window into what is happening. It allows women to know their body, to not be surprised when their period comes, to not be confused by what is this discharge, to not be thrown off by their mood changes this day or, or that day. It allows them to understand where they are in their cycle, how their hormones affect them, and not only for the woman, for the couple. I mean, my husband, we started, I had started charting my cycle long before I got married because of health reasons, um, but when I had gotten married and we were charting, he was very active and he knew there were days of the month and he would take the kids to the library bright and early and then out to the park and then maybe bring them home around dinner time because I just needed some of that space. And there were other times when I would be up until one, two, three o'clock in the morning, he'd be like, why are you still awake? I'm like, because my energy is up to here and I've got all these things to do. And you know, it just depends on where you are. But charting the cycle allows women to really understand where they are. Now, this is a very basic Bio 101 lesson, but for many, even medical professionals, they may not fully appreciate what it takes to make a baby. We all know men, the father, contributes the sperm, and the woman, the wife, will contribute the ovum or the egg. But what most people may not realize that in order for the, the creation of a new human life, an essential factor is the presence of fertile cervical fluid. This is a fluid or mucus type secretion that's produced in the woman's cervix and is released a few days prior to ovulation. This is critical because in the absence of fertile cervical fluid, the sperm will die in the woman's um, reproductive tract within six to 12 hours. When a woman ovulates or releases the egg, the egg will only be there for 12 to 24 hours. Could you imagine if we had to find that narrow window of time each month? Many of us wouldn't be here. But the fertile cervical fluid, when it's present, will actually allow sperm to live for three to five days in the woman's reproductive tract. So a couple could engage in marital relations on a Monday night, and he could take a business trip on Tuesday, not come back until Sunday. She might ovulate on Thursday, and by Friday, they, they're pregnant. Um, but it's the role of fertile cervical fluid that allows the, the conception of a new human being. Just to point out, that's my youngest, who is now four, but there she was at about 12 hours old. Um, it's really simple to understand, but it is powerful. I had a couple that came to me once when I was um, working in a community health center in Washington, D.C. Again, I've primarily served the low-income patient population. Um, so even though there's an IVF clinic practically on every block in the Washington, D.C. area, that's not available to the patients that I serve. And this couple had been trying for over a year to conceive. And the wife had thought that there was something wrong with her because her husband had a child from a previous relationship. And this was very distressing to her. She was only 27 years old. Her husband was 32. And then as I took her history and physical, you know, she described to me what she thought was a recurrent vaginal infection that she would get every month when she would get this discharge. And she said, whenever I get this discharge, I don't have sexual relations with my husband because I don't want to give him whatever it is that I had. Our society convinced her, like we do with every woman, that whatever comes out down there is a problem, whether it's your cervical fluid, your period, or a baby, it's something that we need to suppress or do away with. So she thought this vaginal discharge was a disease and she didn't want to give this to her husband. I did a full history and physical and what I ascertained was that cervical discharge that she described was actually her normal cervical fluid. And she was willfully, purposely abstaining from sexual relations every month at the exact time when she needed to be engaging in sexual relations in order to achieve her family planning goals. And I said to her, 
do me a favor. The next time you notice that, have sex with your husband. Have sex the next day if you'd like, as much as you want. Whatever you do, you are not going to give him anything except hopefully a child. And they came back two months later pregnant. They thought I was a miracle worker and all I had done was explain to them how your body is designed to function. Women deserve this information. They deserve to understand the way their body works. How do I explain this to my patients? I find it very easy to explain to the woman the phases of her cycle by comparing it to the seasons that we experience. In the beginning of the female cycle, after her period is ended, her basal body temperature is low, and we'll talk about that in just a minute, and she notices dryness. Just like at the beginning of the year, the ground is dry, it's cold, it's not suitable for planting. In the springtime, the rains come and moisten the ground. The same time in the woman, as her fertility um, begins to rise, it's under the influence of estradiol, an important female hormone. The estradiol also is what triggers the release, the production of the cervical fluid, and a woman will feel wet or moist. And I explained to them, just like you plant you know, seeds in a moist, fertile ground, that is when you want to plant to allow for child to occur. If a woman becomes pregnant, her progesterone levels will rise and will remain elevated. Her basal body temperature will high. How many of you know of pregnant women who always complain of being hot? It's because their progesterone is up. And it allows, that warm environment allows for the growth and the development of that new human being. If the couple has not conceived, the woman would shed her uterine lining just like the tree shed their leaves at the end of the season. It's amazing just using this very simple analogy how impactful it is. They understand, oh, if I want to get pregnant, I can't plant, you know, during the period. Like, that's not the time. I can't plant um, on the dry days. So what are these signs of fertility? There are three main signs that a woman or couple can learn to observe to identify when they may be fertile and when they may not. The first, again, is the cervical fluid or cervical fluid secretions. Um, the, the cervix is the opening to the uterus, the uterus or the womb where the baby will grow. In the beginning of the woman's cycle, she may not notice anything. She may notice dryness or she may notice a very thick secretion. As her estradiol levels rise, she will begin to notice a thin, clear, stretchy, watery, lubricative type mucus. The way I explain it to my patients is if you crack open an egg and you see that raw egg white and it's that clear, stretchy fluid, that's what it's like. I say this to audience and all the time I'll get this like, oh, yes, I've totally seen that but never knew what it is. If ovulation has not occurred, okay, the estradiol levels will rise and begin to drop. If I, um, I'm sorry, if, yeah, it, once, once the woman ovulates, the body, the, the follicle that releases the egg will produce progesterone, and the progesterone will change the fluid into a thicker tight mucus, basically to create a barrier to prevent any further entry of foreign substances. It's progesterone or artificial progesterone, progestins that are used in many forms of artificial birth control to basically create a thick barrier to prevent sperm penetration, and women can observe this. Um, this is just some examples that women can observe if they look. The next is basal body temperature. A woman's basal body temperature is her temperature that she takes at the same time every morning um, when she first wakes up. And again, in the beginning of the cycle, the woman will notice that her temperature is about a half a degree lower. Once the woman ovulates, the follicle bursts, releases the egg, the remnant follicle forms the corpus luteum to produce the progesterone. It is the rise in progesterone that will cause that rise in basal body temperature, and it will remain elevated. And you can see this on this example. This is an example of a chart of the female hormones. So you can see the um, blue line is the estrogen. It rises, the estradiol rises shortly before ovulation, producing the cervical fluid. Once it begins to drop, the body then releases luteinizing hormone or LH hormone and it's a surge or a spike in this hormone that actually, I like to describe it as, as you know, if, the, if the, you can think of the follicle or the egg as a balloon, as it's growing, 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 the LH pops that balloon and the egg is released. Once that balloon ruptures, that follicle ruptures, it for, forms the corpus luteum and you can see the rise in progesterone that mirrors the basal body temperature rise. Uh, Okay, so again, these are three very simple signs that through proper education, women and couples can learn to chart to be able to identify when they may be fertile and when they are not. And they do this through using various fertility awareness-based methods. There are some methods, like the Billings ovulation method, 
or the Creighton model, again, I'm trained as a Creighton medical consultant, which teach women to simply chart their cervical fluid secretions to identify the beginning of their fertile window and the end of their fertile window. Couples can use that information um, depending on their family planning goals. If they've got serious reasons to avoid or if they're actively trying to conceive, they can use that information. Although I will say I have plenty of patients who just don't simply, simply ignore it because they're open to life um, regardless. Um, couples can learn to use the symptothermal method, which involves charting cervical fluid plus basal body temperature. The cervical fluid, again, shows the, um, the beginning of the fertile window and the basal body temperature indicates the end. This is commonly taught through the Couple to Couple League. SymptoPro is another organization. Justice is a secular organization um, that teaches the symptothermal method. The symptohormonal method involves teaching women to chart cervical secretions and using urinary hormone measurements, measurements of estradiol and LH to cross-check to identify the beginning and end of the window. And then the standard days method, which was developed at Georgetown's Institute for Reproductive Health, with which I'm not affiliated specifically, this is a standardized version um, that can be used by women with very regular cycles that are 26 to 32 days long. There are many people that do like this because it doesn't actually involve observing any signs at all, but it can be used effectively. The key with this is, and you know, I get this a lot from my medical colleagues, this is too complicated, or poor people can't do this, this is so difficult, it's too time consuming. And they say to them, this isn't time consuming at all. When I teach women how to chart their cycle, I basically tell them, do you remember to hit the snooze button on your alarm? When you do that, pop the thermometer in your mouth. It's not complicated. If you're checking cervical fluid, do you remember to wipe when you go to the bathroom? Most people don't have an issue with that. And I tell them, you simply need to wipe before you go to the bathroom, pay attention to the sensation, look to see if there's any cervical secretions, and then mark this down um, during the day. So it takes just a few minutes a day. Women can learn to chart on paper, or they can chart on apps. I will tell you one of the things that FACS did, we've done two large research projects. The first, we did a review of the effectiveness of fertility awareness-based methods in terms of how effective they are for helping couples to uh, postpone pregnancy, and I'll talk about that data in a little bit. But we also did a review of fertility awareness apps that are on the market. And in 2015, there were almost 100 apps on the market that were specifically designed to help couples who were trying to avoid pregnancy. When we actually researched those apps, we excluded more than half from our study because more than half were not actually based on any evidence-based fertility awareness method. Um, and a number of them included a disclaimer in the fine print that they should not be used to prevent pregnancy. So we ended up reviewing 40 apps. There were only about 10 that we would recommend. Um, and um, if you visit our factsaboutfertility.org website and just put apps in the search term, you will come up with our one-page summary or a link to the article if you're interested in that. So who is charting for? Charting can work for everyone, whether you're single, married, poor, rich. Um, this is simply a way for women to understand what is happening in their bodies and for couples to work together to plan for their families. And it does so because it teaches them about the way their body is designed to function. Now, let's talk about fertility awareness-based methods for women's health. Again, I, I am a family physician, but I've always been passionate about women's health. The day I decided to be a doctor, I was eight years old. And I sat at my mother's feet and watched my baby sister come into the world. That was a transformational moment in my life because it showed me the, the potential beauty and what I wanted to do. So I knew as a family physician I wanted to do uh, women's health, and I did do deliveries. But like I said, I was on OB call one night. So I was eight years old, saw my sister being born. That was the day I decided I was going to be a doctor. Flash forward 21 years later, I'm on OB call one night as a resident, as a first-year intern, and as a first-year intern, you do all the scut work, the work that nobody else wants to do, all the paperwork, writing the prescriptions. So I was on OB call, and I was doing what any good intern was instructed to do. You do not let a woman leave the hospital with a baby without birth control on board. That is the implicit message that you are taught, that you are trained, and so I sat there and was writing prescriptions for the birth control pill and for the depo shot, thinking I'm doing my job as a good resident. And I was very blessed that my senior resident, um, this very quiet, thoughtful, sweet um, Asian American woman, said to me, you know, you don't have to prescribe the birth control pill if it violates your conscience. And I looked at her, I'm like, well, what do you mean? Because <laughs> I had never heard of Humana Vitae. I had no idea what the church taught. And I said to her, but what am I supposed to do for my patients? I need to give them something. And she said, well, you know, there are some forms of family planning that have no medical side effects. 
that can be used effectively by couples to prevent, to prevent pregnancy if that's their goal. And I said, well, no, every form of family planning has some side effect. She said, no, there are natural methods of family planning where women can learn to chart their cycle. I was stunned. I thought to myself, I'm a 29-year-old female passionate about women's health. How have I never heard this before? That shock quickly turned to anger. And that anger quickly turned to resolve, that I would make it my life's mission to make sure no other person would graduate from medical school without learning this basic fundamental information. And so 10 years later, I had the opportunity to volunteer to teach an elective at Georgetown um, to a small group of first-year medical students. At the time, I was the medical director of Catholic Charities, running two medical clinics, two dental clinics. I had a network of volunteer specialists that I was trying to coordinate, and I had a three-year-old and a one-year-old. So all the free time in the world so that when Georgetown contacted me and said, would you like to volunteer to teach a small group class? I thought, what a great opportunity to teach even 10 students about natural family planning. And then the rational part of my brain kicked in and said, with what time are you going to create an eight-week course? So I hit the delete button. And then a week later, my colleague emailed me again and said, we're still looking for people. And I thought to myself, I really should do this. I was really feeling called to do it. And I'm like, I can't. And I went to hit that delete button again. And have you ever had that experience where like, your body just won't do what you're trying to tell it to do? And I threw my hands up and I said, OK, this is what you want me to do. I will do this, but I need help. Long story short, I had nine students sign up for the class, which I was thrilled. I didn't know if anybody would be interested in learning this. And I had 12 people teaching it. And not just anybody, but I had the folks from the Georgetown Institute for Reproductive Health that developed the standard days method and the LAM method. I had Dr. Richard Faring, who developed the Marquette method, willing to fly in from Wisconsin to give a one-hour lecture on his method. And I said, Richard, I am so grateful, but you need to know Georgetown isn't paying me to teach this course, so I can't pay you. I'm like, I might be able to cover your parking. He's like, it's worth it. Dr. Hannah Klaus, who is an obstetrician gynecologist and a religious sister who developed the Teen Star Method, came and spoke to the students about Teen Star. But the best part was the feedback from the students. This is the best class I've had in Georgetown. How fortunate we were that the founders, the people that developed and researched these methods, came and spoke to us. This was the most practical information I've learned at any point in my medical school career. This is something every medical student should learn as this is basic women's health. And I thought to myself, they're right. And that is what led to the formation of facts. And our focus is, fo is educating our medical community. I'll be honest, when I go into medical audiences, I don't tend to lead with, hey, fertility awareness-based methods is a great way to prevent pregnancy, because they are currently being trained to believe that the IUD is what every woman needs. Not only every woman, every adolescent needs. So I try not to lead with that message, but I try to lead with the message of this is good for women's health um, to convince my medical colleagues. And what I do is I talk to them about the range of health issues that can be addressed by learning to chart the female cycle, whether it's polycystic ovarian syndrome, premenstrual syndrome or PMS, painful periods, irregular periods, postpartum depression, and yes, even infertility. The way we're traditionally approached, though, again, give women the pill. Well, let me make it very clear. The pill does not treat almost any one of these conditions. What the pill does is it shuts down the female cycle. It suppresses her normal hormones. It gives her artificial hormones to give her a withdrawal bleed. It is not a period. It is a withdrawal bleed. We're trained to give antidepressants. I have a patient now who um, is a 29-year-old single woman with severe PMS. She's like, I'm like Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. Like, I know I don't even want to be around people. And the only option my doctor is giving me is to take a depressant, an antidepressant medication. I'm not depressed 75% of the time. Why do I have to take an antidepressant and deal with all of the side effects? And I said, you're right. You don't. And so I started her charting. And now I'm supplementing her progesterone. And I've got her moods and a much better balance. I'm giving her a short-term medication to treat the underlying cause, insufficient progesterone, rather than bypassing it. In terms of infertility, what women are offered is in vitro fertilization. Um, in 2008, I was invited um, to give a talk at Georgetown Medical School in their human sexuality class on fertility and infertility. Um, unfortunately, for better or for worse, the course director had no idea of my beliefs because I was very much in the closet at Georgetown University. I did not dare speak um, to my beliefs. 
Um, and so I was allowed to give this talk. I was eight months pregnant at the time. So first of all, I was like very hormonal. My babysitter hadn't showed up this morning to watch my two-year-olds. I was very stressed. And I stood in front of this class and I prayed that I would have the courage to speak and share the truth about fertility and infertility. And I remember saying, you know, discussing artificial reproductive technology. And the course director, I mean, the audience was like four or five times this size. We had 200 people there, 200 medical students. You could have heard a pin drop. The course director interrupted me and said, it is not artificial reproductive technology. It's assistive. And I just looked at her and I'm like, you know, we can debate the semantics, but there is nothing natural about this. And it doesn't actually assist women in getting pregnant. It doesn't get at the root cause. It bypasses it and gets them pregnant outside. That is not assisting women. Truly assisting women is figuring out why can't you get pregnant. And the issue may not even be with the woman. The issue might be with the man. But our artificial reproductive technology, it's a very lucrative business. It's a quick fix. Our society is about what is the quick fix? What is the profitable fix? So this is what we're commonly offered. Fertility awareness-based methods offers a different approach. Again, with PMS, the goal is to have the woman chart, do a targeted hormonal uh, testing, and treat the actual abnormality. With infertility, I'm using natural procreative technology or NAPRO technology. Um, there are, have been two large studies that show birth rates are comparable to artificial reproductive technology by getting at the root cause and treating the underlying cause. So there are some methods like Creighton and NAPRO technology. FEM, which is relatively new, stands for Fertility Education and Medical Management. They have not been around nearly as long as Creighton, so they don't have the level of research, but it is another new approach. And again, the Marquette model has um, programs specifically towards a health approach as well. So let's talk about, I'm just checking my clock here, um, using these methods to avoid or achieve pregnancy. So again, we talked about the fact that it takes a man and a woman to make a baby. I know this is very basic, but sometimes in the audiences I speak to, I have to like just lay out the very simple straight facts and point out Healthy men are almost always fertile. From the time a man goes through puberty, assuming he's not given puberty-blocking drugs or um, is sick or otherwise um, incapacitated, healthy men are almost always fertile. They're able to produce sperm on a daily basis. Healthy women, on the other hand, are almost always infertile. If you recall, I said a woman will ovulate once a month or once per cycle. And when she ovulates, the egg will survive for 12 to 24 hours. She has about three to five days of fertile cervical fluid that might be present leading up to ovulation. And that is what gives us that six-day fertile window when a woman is capable of getting pregnant. So she's pregnant maybe 20% of the time, 70 to 80 days a year. Yet how many women take a pill every single day or have an IUD that's placed for five to 10 years, exposing her to risks of, um, risk of harm and side effects when she's only fertile less than 20% of the time? If everything is working perfectly, um, at the time leading up to ovulation, the woman will begin to produce that cervical fluid that allows the sperm to survive. If the sperm are able to make their way through the fallopian tubes, that is where fertilization will occur and you've got the creation of a genetically unique human being. This, this slide can be quite triggering in some of the medical audiences I've, I've spoken to. I actually had one person give me feedback, please don't refer to it as a human zygote. I'm like, what would you like me to refer to it as? Because that is a human zygote at the moment of conception. The human zygote will rapidly begin to develop and divide, forming a human embryo, and after seven to 10 days, will implant into the uterine lining. Now, I don't know if you're aware, but in the 1960s, ACOG, the American College of Obstetrician and Gynecologists, changed the definition of pregnancy. Why? Because they recognize that hormonal birth control can actually lead to preventing implantation of a new human embryo. So they define pregnancy as beginning at implantation. I'm like, you can call pregnancy whatever you want, but the beginning of the human life occurs at fertilization, which is seven to 10 days prior to implantation. I think we just need to be very consistent in speaking the truth. I detest the term fertilized egg. There is no such thing as fertilized egg. As soon as fertilization occurs, it is a human zygote. It is not merely an egg. It is a genetically unique human individual. I have to just point out that slide is like my 10-year-old daughter's favorite slide. She thinks it's the coolest ever. So how effective, <laughs> my kids are not gonna have any problem knowing their human biology. How effective are fertility awareness-based methods? Again, when I speak to a general audience or a secular audience or a college audience, you know, this is something that they wanna know because what they hear is that these methods don't work. Again, FACTS did a review and if you look at the highest quality studies, 
both with correct and typical use, it's more than 90% effective, depending on the method that you're using. And this is comparable to the commonly used forms of birth control, whether it's the pill or the condom. The IUD is going to be much more effective because it doesn't require women to do anything, but it does require women to have a metal or plastic device inserted into their uterus and walk around with it for the next five to 10 years. And I dare say I don't know any man that would be open to such uh, a concept of having a metal or plastic device inserted into their reproductive organs for them to walk around for the next five to 10 years. So I encourage my female colleagues to consider that. So what is the, did you want to get that? There you go. You got it. <laughs> so what is the failure rate that most women are familiar with? Let me ask you. Um, when, have you been told by a doctor or um, saw in media how effective are fertility awareness-based methods or natural family planning? How often do they fail? What rate do you hear? What's that? Astronomical. Yeah, usually it's like, don't even think about it. It's so high. So what is commonly quoted in the medical literature is 24%, and this is the statistic that is quoted by the Centers for Disease Control. Um, so why do I have an X crossed out and say, no, that's not correct? Let me tell you where that statistic comes from. In 2011, there was a medical article published by um, uh, James Tressel, who is an economist at um, Princeton. So, uh, and what he did is he looked at data from the National Survey for Family Growth from 1998 and 2005. These are surveys where women were surveyed, called, and asked, did you get pregnant in the last year? And if you got pregnant, what form of birth control or family planning were you using? Now, they didn't bother to ask if you got pregnant, were you trying to get pregnant? They just assumed if they got pregnant and were using a form of family planning, then they must have been intending not to get pregnant. Failing to recognize that women that may be using natural methods of family planning might have been using those methods to get pregnant, so they wouldn't consider that a failure necessarily, but that was not taken into consideration. The other thing of note is that um, when they asked the women, um, what they discovered is it didn't equally represent all the methods, but fully 86% said they were using some sort of a calendar calculation or rhythm type method. What they did, though, was they combined all natural methods, whether a woman said she was using billings or symptothermal or calendar or going to the phases of the moon. If it was a natural method, it was lumped together. Now, I say to my medical colleagues, you don't lump the Marina IUD, which is progesterone-containing IUD, with the depo shot, which is progesterone shot, with the progesterone mini pill and say, well, they all contain progesterone, so we're just going to combine the effectiveness rates because they all have progesterone. No, they work differently. Similarly, natural methods of family planning um, work differently, and you need to look at the individual effectiveness rates. And as you saw on the previous slide, uh, even with typical use, the symptothermal method has uh, unintended pregnancy rates as low as 2%, and that's based on two large studies um, that were done in Germany. Now, my colleagues will say, well, you can't compare that because that was in Germany and we're in the United States. I'm like, right, because women in Germany have a different physiology than women in the United States. So my, my response to that was maybe we should direct more funding in the United States to actually looking at the effectiveness of fertility awareness-based methods. Now, I want to point out that I, I said in that study, uh, the majority of women reported they were using some sort of calendar or rhythm type method. I would dare say most of them were not using the actual rhythm method because I don't think most people really understand what the actual rhythm method was. I do want to point out, though, modern fertility awareness-based methods are not the rhythm method. The rhythm method, when it was developed, in 1932, before World War II, was a major scientific advance. This was 30 years before the birth control pill. And it was based on the latest research from the 1920s that showed ovulation occurs 12 to 16 days before the next period. So Dr. Um, Leo Latz, who's an obstetrician gynecologist at Loyola, used that information to develop formulas where women would track the, the length of their previous six cycles and take the longest cycle and subtract a number and the shortest cycle and subtract a number, and that would give them the potential days of fertility in the current cycle. So what they were doing was they were using retrospective data to try to predict future fertility. And the rhythm method was really simply used for family planning, just like the telephone of the 1930s was used to make phone calls, right? How many of you still have a telephone that looks like that? Maybe a few, but most people don't. Modern fertility awareness-based methods, however, are more than just tools for family planning that can help couples to prevent pregnancy, but they can be used to monitor a woman's reproductive health, address a range of women's health issues, and give a woman so much more information, just like today's smartphone. I use my smartphone for everything except talking to people 
with the exception of my kids, who I like to FaceTime with when I'm away. But modern fertility awareness-based methods differ from the rhythm method, and they use data in real time. They use the signs that the woman is observing today to predict the likelihood of her fertility in that day. You're not using retrospective information to try to predict future fertility. You're using real-time data to identify the likelihood of your fertility. Um, so that talks about how these can be used to avoid pregnancy in terms of achieving pregnancy. This is also important. Um, for, and I say this because infertility is becoming more and more common. One in six to one in eight couples experience infertility. Part of this is women are waiting way too long to have babies. I was one of those, but I kind of believed that I should have a husband before I had a baby. I got married when I was 33, so by default I didn't have children until my, my mid-30s. But many women are waiting, not realizing that you may not have that window. I mean, your fertility will decrease after a period of time. But in couples of quote-unquote normal fertility, 85% um, if they engage in random acts of sexual intercourse, is what the study says, which cracks me up. I'm like, I don't know who randomly has sexual intercourse, but um, who are randomly engaging in sexual intercourse, 85% of couples will conceive within one year. Some people might think, oh, that's a good number. Well, for folks in my field, if you're you know, starting residency, you may not want it to be random. You may want to have a little bit more um, influence over the timing. And so there was a study of the symptothermal method that showed when couples tracked their cycle and simply used fertility-focused intercourse, meaning they had sex when they were most likely fertile because they detected their cervical fluid secretions, um, almost that same percentage got pregnant in half the amount of time. So simply knowing when you are fertile and knowing when you are not can have a positive impact on achieving pregnancy. As I alluded to earlier, there have been two large studies. One was done in Ireland and one was done in Canada. This is data from the Ireland study. The women, the, the average age was advanced maternal age, or the ICD-9 code refers to as elderly gravida, which I cracked up because I was an elderly gravida for three of my four pregnancies. Um, these women were trying for more than five years. By the end of this study, after two years, they had 52.8 live births per 100 couples. This is significant. I mean, the, the commonly quoted statistics for artificial reproductive technologies is 25%. Um, so it shows that this is a more affordable option. There are no ethical consequences. You know, again, with artificial reproductive technology, what they do to increase their success rates is they will create multiple embryos, and they'll implant multiple embryos, and then they'll do what's called selective reduction, those of you familiar with the term selective reduction, when I was giving that lecture to the second year medical students at Georgetown, I said, let me describe to you what this entirely benign term actually is. And I discussed at that time there was a big debate in the news about um, the death penalty being cruel and unusual punishment because you're injecting potassium chloride and this is so painful to the prisoners. And I'm like, this is what selective reduction is. You know, they use an ultrasound. They either identify the embryo with it's got a poor genetic makeup because we don't want any quote unquote special needs children, or it was unfortunately in some cases just a matter of location. I said, and what they would do is they would inject potassium chloride into the beating heart and watch it stop. You know, and similarly, like I would have the medical students just sit there cringing because nobody actually told them what it was. That is what it is. And uh, the, the research shows for every live birth, there are six embryos that are destroyed. Um, and that does not even include the ones that are still kept um, frozen. So with uh, fertility awareness-based methods, NAPR technology, you do not have those issues. So why don't we hear about fertility awareness-based methods or natural family planning? Again, I was 29 years old and a doctor before I ever heard this. One, it's marketing <laughs> and money. There's not a lot of money to be made in teaching women how to chart their cycle. You know, I'm not putting in a device that I can charge $500 for. I'm not writing a prescription every three months, and it's fast to write a prescription. You know, in doctors today, they have 10-minute visits, which is why I don't do that. I do direct primary care, so I've got, like, my average visits are about 30 to 60 minutes. New patients is about 60 to 90 minutes, depending. Um, but in the medical community, they don't have much time, and it's much faster to write prescriptions, and it's more profitable. In fact, the birth control industry in the United States alone is a $4 billion industry. Women are rejecting it because they don't like the side effects. And what they're doing is they're, trying to, they're coming up with all new indications. Is there any other drug that can be used for such a wide variety of conditions as well as a preventive tool effectively? No. And in fact, the birth control is the most widely prescribed medication given to a healthy individual to create a diseased state fully accompanied by all of the side effects. This is insane, but it's an incredibly profitable industry. 
Um, you know, for better or for worse too, when I talk about it, and again, this is part of why I don't use the term natural family planning, people associate natural family planning with Catholic birth control. As soon as you say NFP, they don't want to hear anything else. Um, there's a, obviously, we know there's an inherent bias um, within our culture against anything um, Catholic. And it's interesting because I do a lot of talks and I, I find in many instances, many of the people that are interested in hearing this method are not people of faith. They're secular people that are concerned about the hormones that they're putting in their, in their body, the hormones that are going into their environment. I actually went to a conference a year and a half ago. It was a fertility awareness educators conference. So the only doctor there is pretty sure it was the only pro-life person there and the only Catholic there. And it was quite fascinating to be among this group that was very pro-fertility awareness. Um, but, uh, but that was it. <laughs> that, was about, that, that was the extent of our commonalities. So, and then of course the misinformation and the, the statistic that continually goes out that these methods fail 24% of the time. How do we at FACTS try to address that? We have a medical update um, and a letter that we're working on putting together packets that people can order to give to their medical professional to say, here's the actual facts about fertility awareness-based methods, and it includes the research article that's published in a medical journal. So, we've talked about this a little bit, but fertility awareness-based methods, I wanna transition here. I wanna emphasize these really are a healthy alternative. Let's talk about why. These are the commonly um, used methods of birth control that women are offered. Again, the IUD is now considered first line, both in adults and adolescents, um, followed by the birth control pill, the depot shot, and the NuvaRing. But let's look at how these work. So with the intrauterine device, again, it's a plastic or metal device that's inserted into the woman's uterus um, that is expected to stay there for five years. Um, there are a number of complications, including pain, bleeding, weight gain, mood swings, perforation, um, where the IUD actually perforates the uterus and could require emergency surgery, uh, pelvic inflammatory disease, which can lead to infertility, and ectopic pregnancy. How does hormonal birth control work? I was shocked to discover this, especially after I had been prescribing birth control for a while and I didn't know how it worked. But the way hormonal birth control works is first, the hormones, the artificial hormones that are given are designed to prevent ovulation from occurring by blocking the woman's normal hormones. In today, the hormones that are in the artificial hormones in hormonal birth control are much lower doses than they were 30, 40 years ago, and they're much lower doses to reduce the side effects. But because they are much lower, there's a higher chance for breakthrough ovulation. And so the other way that hormonal birth control works is to thicken the cervical mucus to prevent the sperm from penetrating. If that doesn't work and the sperm are still able to travel through the uterine uh, cavity into the fallopian tube, it actually delays the motion of the fallopian tube to prevent the egg and the sperm from reaching um, before they disintegrate um, to prevent conception from occurring there. And if all else fails, it is also designed to thin the uterine lining. Many women say, I take birth control not for birth, I, I take hormonal birth control pills not for birth control because I have really heavy periods. And now that I'm on the pill, my periods are so light. And it is true, if you know women that are on the pill, they will report their periods are much, much lighter. By making a woman's periods much, much lighter, making that uterine lining so thin, if fertilization does occur, that seven to 10 day embryo has no place to implant and it can prevent implantation. When I've shared this with some patients, I've literally had women break down in tears, you know, because they were like, nobody ever told me. And I think as medical professionals, it's our duty to provide true informed consent. Um, as I mentioned, many women now are, are moving away from the pill because of the numerous side effects. I don't put this up here to overwhelm you, but these are all of the side effects that are reported in the medical literature. And I point this out because as you can see, these affect every organ system in the woman's body. Okay, the pill does not simply act on the woman's reproductive tract. It can affect her um, generally. It can affect her, cardio, her, her heart. It can affect her endocrine system. It can affect her skin. It can affect her mental health. It can have a range of side effects. Now, many women will report they feel much better on the pill. They like the way they feel on the pill. But research shows that 65% of women, two-thirds of women, will stop using the birth control pill in the first year because of side effects. And when they go back to their medical professional, what they're offered is a different version of the pill with different hormones to see if that one works. And if that one doesn't work, another version. And if that one doesn't work, let's try an IUD. It usually takes women, and many women will never be offered fertility awareness-based methods. There's a very popular book in the secular world, it's called Sweetening the Pill, How Women Are Hooked on Hormonal Birth Control. And it was written by a woman who is very anti-Catholic, and that comes across in her writing. Um, she's blocked me on Twitter. 
<laughs> so um, you can, you're all welcome to follow me on Twitter at facts underscore fertility. Um, but she talks about how you know she went to doctor after doctor with complaints of the side effects, and she was only offered more birth control. And she ultimately discovered what the secular world refers to as fertility awareness methods, and, and now is a big promoter of those. In addition to the myriad of minor side effects, there are major side effects, serious side effects. As I said, increased risk of blood clots, increased risk of heart attack, increased risk of stroke, um, increased risk of breast cancer, cervical cancer, and liver cancer. And what my colleagues will say is, well, you know, it may increase the risk of breast cancer. I'll put the joint put the other one back. It may increase the risk of breast cancer, but it reduces their risk of ovarian and endometrial cancer. And I'm like, well, that very well may be true. I mean, it may, it may reduce their risk of ovarian and endometrial cancer by 10% and only increase their risk of breast cancer by 5%. So, you know, you're doubling, you know, their protection, right? Because it's going to reduce their risk of ovarian and endometrial cancer. Well, look at the incidence rates. We don't have the Susan G. Komen walk for ovarian cancer or endometrial cancer. Not that those aren't serious and important cancers, and in fact, I have an aunt who's a survivor of ovarian cancer, but the incidence of these cancers are so much lower. So this is data, I think, from 2015, um, and as you can see, if you only increase the risk of breast cancer by 5%, but you have 250,000 women that get breast cancer, that's another 12,500 women that will potentially have breast cancer because of hormonal birth control. And if you reduce the risk of ovarian and endometrial cancer, which together makes up um, about 80,000, if you reduce that risk by 10%, well, you've saved 8,000 women from cancer. Well, the net effect is you still have more cancer. So that's what I will point out to my colleagues. And I also point out another great protective effect for ovarian and endometrial cancer, pregnancy, mm, go figure, and breastfeeding, all wonderful things, but we don't hear the medical professional community promoting that as heavily as they do hormonal birth control. Um, you know when Cosmopolitan is pointing out that women are dying from the pill? This is not a right-wing or a religious issue. I mean, they, have, they did this article, this is back I think in 2015, um, and they highlighted the stories of some of these women. I have met uh, Erica Langhart's parents and Julia um, Ross's mother and father. Um, Julia died five weeks after her wedding from a blood clot to the lung. Uh, Erica Langhart's parents, um, she was pronounced dead. Um, I think it was like, she was supposed to go home on Tuesday for Thanksgiving and instead her parents got a call that she was in the hospital and she was pronounced one or two days later, like right around Thanksgiving. Um, women should not die taking a medication that is not needed um, to treat a disease. And again, my colleagues will say, but the risk of death is so low. It's just 0 0.1, 0.2%. It's so low. And they'll point out, and it's safer than pregnancy. And I'm like, well, that assumes if a woman is not on birth control that she will be pregnant. And it's not an either or. And if you say only 0.2% of women, well, that's fine. But 0.2% of what number? When it, over 10 million women in our country are taking birth control, we're talking thousands of women. It is somebody's sister mother, wife, daughter. So even a small percentage is still a lot of women. Good, I have a few more minutes left because I don't like to end on such a negative note. <laughs> um, but it, it, it is, I mean, I would certainly, um, you know, and the, these families were like, if we only knew, if our daughter only knew, we would have told them to do something else. So it was very sad. So let's talk about the positive effects um, it can have on the relationship. Um, this is based on data from a study that was just done by um, Couple to Couple League, uh, looked at the, the impact of fertility awareness-based methods on uh, divorce rates. Couples that use fertility awareness-based methods have significantly lower divorce rates. Um, more than two-thirds report an improvement in their life and in their sexual relationship. No, that's two-thirds. It's important to keep in mind that NFP isn't um, the answer to all marital problems, because one-third of couples will still struggle. NFP, I don't want to gloss over and say it's the easiest thing in the world. It can have a positive impact for many people, but some people may still struggle. Um, abstinence. Abstinence is a bad word, right? We think, well, when you abstain from something, you have to refrain from a pleasurable activity. Whether you're abstaining from sex because you want to prevent pregnancy, whether you abstain from drinking the weekend before a set of final exams, whether you're abstain from you know, eating the day before Thanksgiving because you know you want to enjoy a little bit more the next day. Abstinence is not a bad word. It's simply refraining from a pleasurable activity. Now, 
Abstinence can create challenges, and it's important for couples to work together, but many couples actually find abstaining, refraining from that pleasurable activity for a period of time, actually makes it more joyful. And when you think about that, if you think about people that are constantly in, you know, engaging in something, it loses that, that specialness. A couple of years ago, I decided to get my children an annual pass to Disney World. And we went like every other month. And by the fourth month, my kids were like, do we have to go back to Disney World? And I'm thinking, ah. And now they can't wait to go, because it's been three years. I'm like, nope, we're going to wait a little bit longer. So fertility awareness-based methods can improve relationships. Um, when you can talk to your spouse about your cervical fluid, there's really nothing that's off limits. Um, I mean, you can talk about anything. I mean, couples that use these methods do have, tend to have improved communication. It no longer places the burden of family planning solely on the shoulders of women. It's a shared responsibility, um, and it should be. Like I say to my partners, women don't make babies on their own, and they shouldn't certainly, I mean, some women do an amazing job as single mothers, but it really should be a shared responsibility. It creates a sense of mutual respect. Um, you know, when people understand and appreciate the hormonal changes that a woman goes through, uh, it, it can increase their appreciation for where they are. And as I said, when you avoid an activity for a period of time, that develops an appreciation for what that is. You know, it builds that anticipation. Um, you may have to have that period of abstinence, you know, and it may be because you're trying to prevent pregnancy or maybe, you know, you've just had a baby and your wife's body is recovering. And so, it, but that time can build an appreciation um, and an anticipation. Like, I can tell you for darn sure, like, I was thrilled to leave Wednesday when my kids were driving me crazy. I can't wait to get on the plane this afternoon because I miss them terribly, especially after seeing Michael Ann's uh, pictures of her beautiful family. <laughs> so. Um, when I talk about these methods, I do want to emphasize that learning a fertility awareness-based method is a wonderful thing, and everybody should do it, but it is important that you learn a fertility awareness-based method from a trained instructor. How many of you have teenage children? Did you give them a book on how to drive a car and say, here are the keys? No. <laughs> no. You know, if you're smart, and my husband is insisting we do with our children, you hire an instructor to actually go over, you know, in the classroom first, then you get them behind the wheel and you're there guiding them along the way. This isn't something you just want to say like, here's an app, here's a book, figure it out. Um, you know, it's also, you know, people say, well, it's natural, so it should be easy. For those of you mothers in the room that have, been bre that have breastfed babies, breastfeeding is one of those other things that's really quote unquote easy, but it's not always, you know, and I tell women when they're pregnant, you should learn all about breastfeeding long before the baby comes, because once they put that baby in your arms and you're like completely hormonal and you're exhausted and you're in pain and you're, and then you're trying to learn how to do this new thing, read about it, learn about it, watch friends that are doing it, you know, and then if you need more support, some women will pick it up really easily. Some women may need to work with a lactational consultant so they can learn to um, breastfeed more effectively. So I really encourage people, if you're learning, learn from a trained instructor. Why? They'll help you to understand your cycle. If you've got things that are unusual, you're not sure about, it will give you more information. Um, there are a number of methods out there. This is a shared decision-making tool that FACS has developed, and it's not available currently because we are testing it in a clinical trial but it lists the different options that women can use. The interesting thing is in order to do this study, we had to search to identify any medical professional in the United States that is either trained in a fertility awareness-based method or at least knowledgeable or familiar with fertility awareness-based methods. And in the um, process of searching the internet, going to the One More Soul website, the websites for each of the individual fertility awareness-based methods, we came up with a total list of 600 medical professionals in the United States that are knowledgeable of fertility awareness-based methods. There are 300 million people in the United States, only 600 medical professionals. And in the process of recruiting these uh, physicians, we found out many of them are not actually in fields where they deal with women's health. You know, they're a radiologist, they're a pathologist, they're a psychiatrist, I mean, all great specialties. But in the end, there may be, we estimate probably about 300 medical professionals that are knowledgeable and familiar about fertility awareness-based methods. You know, I, I, we always hear about like abortion access and women don't have access to abortion providers. What women do not have access to are medical professionals that can provide authentic, holistic women's reproductive health care by integrating fertility awareness-based methods into practice. And that is why FACTS exists. So we started FACTS, again, our mission is to get into the medical schools, into the residencies. We have over 85 speakers. We have webinars. We want to get out there to train the next generation. We have an ambassador program. I'm delighted one of our ambassadors, Lisa, is here. She's a midwifery student. 
Our goal is to encourage these students and residents to not be bullied, to not feel like they can't go into women's health if they don't want to prescribe birth control or they don't want to, or they want to offer fertility awareness-based methods into their practice. Because without these doctors and midwives and nurse practitioners, you're not going to have these people to take care of you, your children, and your families. So if you'd like more information, um, you can also email me directly at info at factsaboutfertility.org um, and visit, visit our website. So I think we might have a few minutes for questions. Lynn, are we going to do any questions? It's 10 up. Actually finished in now. This microphone.